1: everybody to wrestling omakase. It is episode number 143. And after about 20 minutes of technical difficulties, I've got Mr. Joel Abraham from the Super J Cast on the line. Uh, it is, I think, after 10 o'clock at night over in the hotel room in, in Thailand where Joel is. So first of all, Joel, thank you very much for your patience. Uh, I don't know how you put up with that, but I greatly appreciate it.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It just means I can shirk my parenting responsibilities because this a serious <laughs> business. You know, we've got to be delivering the content to people during these difficult times, John. It's true. So and if,
1: if there's any baby, if people don't listen to Super Jcast, first of all, uh, Joel, tell them how dare you.
2: Yeah. I don't, what, what are you doing? I mean, the the brilliant, brilliant shows we've been putting out over the last couple of months. <laughs> There's happened? no
1: New Japan and you've still somehow been doing shows. I don't know. I don't know how, but yes. If you don't listen to Super J uh we might have baby run-ins. That's, that's a thing. So... Yeah, uh, it was don't... cat run-ins
2: before. The cat run-ins are now finished and they've evolved to baby run-ins. So <laughs> apologies in advance.
1: Yeah, if you hear a screaming baby. But uh, other than being locked in a hotel room, what's been going on?
2: Uh the things are right here actually just Thailand is one of the uh places where it's, it hasn't hit so badly and they're starting to ease up a bit so I can do things like go to the park go get coffee go to restaurants so uh with the some distancing restrictions in place so I can't really complain it's it's decent here also restaurants are open Yeah me and Mali went for uh, sushi a couple of days ago you, oh, you're it. not Don't allowed to sit. <laughs> Oh sorry go ahead you can't sit next to someone, and you can't sit opposite them. You can sit diagonally from them. That's
1: the uh, restriction. That's actually kind of smart.
2: Yeah. yeah, although it it doesn't really make sense when it's with my wife and my daughter. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm sleeping with, so that's true. But yeah, um I don't. There's no restaurants open here.
1: I I've noticed. Some of them have been like more than been reopening for delivery. It's funny you mentioned sushi. We can finally order Japanese food here in the Bronx after like two months of not being able to order it. Like all the all the Japanese and Chinese places closed because I think uh, people are racist and didn't want to order <laughs> from. But like, but yeah. So I'm like, be, you know, being a fucking dipshit weebu. I'm here sitting here dying. I'm like, can someone just please deliver tempura to me or something? And. Finally, like a couple Japanese places started, like a, the Chinese places came back first. Let's say like two weeks ago, and then finally some Japanese places have come back this week. And then like the first time I had shrimp again, I was so happy. I was like, "Thank you, God!" But God, uh, yeah, we had we finally got sushi delivered again, so that was good. I mean, it's not it's not cheap, so you can't do it all. You can't do it every day, but uh, I definitely missed all that stuff. So, um, but yeah, I don't know if they're like ramping up because they assume we're going to have, like, the the restaurant dine and seating with restrictions in, like, next month, maybe. I maybe mean, it makes more sense to, like, you know, start offering the delivery and takeout now, so you're ready. I don't know, because it seems like a lot of stuff is reopening, so I guess we'll see. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, we're all kind of just, like, who knows what will happen, you know, like, any guesses are just guesses, so... Like, when I see people yeah. be like, oh, everything's gone until 2022, I'm like, okay. You know, you, you don't know that.
2: You're just, you know. Yeah, no. it yeah could, it's absolutely could be pointless. Be. Every week on Super J-Cast, Dave was like, oh, so when do you think New Japan will be back? I'm like, I don't know. It's pointless. It's a waste of time, me guessing. I don't yeah. know. So just don't worry about it.
1: I mean, all these, all these Japanese wrestling companies, I think, are clearly preparing for like, some kind of social distance crowds. Like, I know Shinjiro Takagi from DDT put out that image of, like, you know, a venue with, like, every other seat available. So maybe they... I mean, I I definitely could see a universe where they try something like that, you know, by the fall in Japan. Because, I mean, the, the if you've been keeping track, the virus is, like, declining there. I know they just had, like, 23 cases in Tokyo or something, which is, you know, they were in, they were in the three digits every day before that. So...
2: You know, I'm glad you've moved on from ROH ticket sales to different sort of data <laughs> analytics. <laughs>
1: but, yeah, I mean, like, I I think they're going to lift the state of emergency on May 31st when they extended it, too. And then we'll see, like, what, like, the phase reopenings look like. I mean, anyone expecting, like, New Japan to be able to run a full osaka Hall or Dominion is crazy. I think they'll... There's like a slight chance they might be able to run like a 25 or 50% Osaka Joe Hall, but I kind of think that that date is probably too soon. But maybe they can come back in July or August. That wouldn't really surprise me. And then in the meantime, do they finally do something empty arena? You know, I think that's possible. Where do you fit on that? Do you want them to empty arena at this point? Because I kind of want them to just stay gone until they can run shows in front of fans again.
2: Yeah, I don't want empty arena either. Um, Absence makes the heart grow fonder. I don't mind having this break, to be honest. I've said on Twitter, it's given me a chance to fill in some of the gaps in my historical knowledge in New Japan. There's so much stuff on NJPW World that I'll never get through it all in my lifetime. So it's just good to hit the pause button and go through some of that stuff. And then when it comes back, I want it to be proper, like maybe not necessarily like full arena, like capacity shows, but I would settle for you know partially filled arenas. Just There's got to be some sort of crowd because the MZ Arena stuff does nothing for me
1: yeah i mean i like some of the empty room stuff in japan has been good like um definitely a lot better than the u.s stuff but i don't know it's uh it's still very i have to be in a mood for it like it's nothing like where, where i'm like even with promotions i really like like ddt or all japan or no or whatever i'm still like well do i feel like sitting through this <laughs> or am i you like i have to hype myself up for it you know yeah so it's, i don't i definitely agree i think at this point like new japan tell that for so long at this point that every time they put those little teases of like oh we're thinking about doing empty room I'm like just fucking wait at this point mm-hmm. like what is the difference but yeah. you know maybe they just feel like they have to do something
2: yeah uh, that's i just want escapism at this point which is why i'm like immersing myself in you know, like tv shows and movies and books and things like that that are going to make me forget the shit that's going on do you ever did you ever play like the kusa games is that something you play
1: I know you're a Shenmue guy.
2: No, I never played them. People keep telling me to play them, and I would love yeah. to play them, but unfortunately my PS4 is in a country that I may no longer <laughs> ever be allowed to go back to. So, my, well, so my, friend, my,
1: my friend, I guess, you're not enough of a gamer. My friend, uh, it doesn't matter what his name is. My friend who, lives, who was living in Japan and moved back to America, he had to come back here so fucking fast. He left his PS4 there, and he just went out and bought a new one. He's like, I am not waiting until... This fucking pandemic is over to play video games. I'm just gonna buy a new PS4. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. okay. Damon's trying uh, to
2: get like listeners to Super J Cast to crowdfund me getting a new PS4, but I I can't justify that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I was, I've been playing through Yakuza Zero, that's why I asked. I never I never played the Yakuza series before, but the Yakuza Zero is so fucking good.
2: But uh, I know that I would love it. It sounds like extremely my jam.
1: Yeah. Um, the other thing we can talk about for wrestling. I know you watched all of High Score Girl. I think on my recommendation, right? I think it that's was correct. Good. Yep.
2: So, um, first of all, what do you think?
1: What do you think of High Score Girl?
2: Well, I just that kind of smoky, grimy arcades of the '90s. That that's my childhood, basically. Because every time I would go on holiday with my parents, it's a very British thing. Like in these seaside towns, you'd have amusement arcades lining. The seafront, the promenade. So, well, you do. My whoa, favorite... whoa,
1: whoa, whoa. We have that in America too. Okay,
2: so yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just a universal thing, I guess. But yeah. as a kid, I would just love to go in there. I wouldn't want to play anything because if I put any money in, I would like get beaten straight away and lose my money and feel terrible. But I used to like watching other people play. I'd even watch it on the attract mode. So just hanging around arcades, I love it. And so th- this kind of stuff, like the the nineties retro arcade game aesthetic, is just carrying call to someone like me and also the fact that it's based around street fighter 2 which is a game like w- when i was a kid my parents bought me uh super nintendo with one game it was street fighter 2 turbo and i played it so much that i got blisters on my thumbs from you know doing the hadouken motion the of, <laughs> forward on the d-pad so completely fucked up my thumbs and uh, i just got obsessed with it just that one game i only have one game but i just went a bit crazy over it and my parents ended up giving away my super nintendo to someone else so I haven't quite forgiven them for that yet, but uh, yeah, Street Fighter 2, big part of my childhood, so... Wait, they uh, gave away your Super Nintendo? Yeah, because I played it too much. Where's the logic Ah. in that, huh?
1: That is, yeah, that's some fucking brutal parenting.
2: Right. So (laughs) anyway, watching this thing where the whole thing is basically uh, centered around playing Street Fighter 2, yeah, that was, I, I love that, it's definitely my kind of thing, and Also, I just think it's a really good series that happens to be an anime that happens to be about video games. I think, like, the story and the characters all sort of hold up within their own right without having to appeal to me through the conduit of video games. That sort of got me into it, but I just think it's a really good series anyway.
1: Right. And, you know, like, the the central romance is, like, really engaging anyway. And, you know... I've watched it twice now because I watched it once by myself, and then like almost immediately I watched the whole thing again with Nicole when I my girlfriend when I convinced her to watch it with me, and there was stuff I didn't notice the second the first time and stuff that I felt differently about the first time. Nicole really hated Hidaka, so that like almost rubbed off on me I think, and I was watching because I liked Hidaka the first time I watched, but then like listening to Nicole complain about this girl the entire time. Why? Why did
2: she hate her so much?
1: She was like, if Hidaka was a guy we would all fucking, like, talk shit about him, basically, because, like, you know, this boy is nice to her, you know, and, like, he... This boy is, like, nice to her and, you know, plays games with her and wants to be her friend, but in no time does he show any romantic interest. And he makes it clear a few times that he does not want to date this girl, and she, like, just will not let it go and, like, you know tries to fucking force him by beating him in a video game. And I guess I'm spoiling the whole series here, but, <laughs> but like she's the point is she's very, very persistent. And, she, and Nicole's whole point, which I didn't get watching it as a, uh, I guess a, a, a sign male, or birth person, Nicole, as a, I guess as a woman was just like, you know, if a man did this to me, I would fucking like want to kill him. And she's like, I feel like we're giving her a, you know, people are giving her a pass because she's a girl.
2: So I was like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. But what's the main character's name again? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good question.
1: Because I can remember Hidaka and I can remember, uh, yeah, I don't know what the name. Okay. Well, anyway,
2: my my point is going to be main character guy, whatever his name is. I hope you're searching that in the background. He doesn't show romantic interest towards anyone. But that's like that's well, one that one is, one well that's true so the American. main character
1: is Har- haro Yaguchi. i don't know how we forgot that
2: but yeah okay. um but yeah
1: I, I mean he doesn't show romantic interest to anyone but i feel like he 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 does eventually get to a point where he it becomes a difference of not showing romantic interest to actively not liking hidaka hidaka makes a very hidaka, it's not like hidaka doesn't understand this i mean at one point she says i think when she's setting up the video game thing she says like uh You know, I know that this is a one-way interest, so I don't know. I just think the second time I watched it, especially, it came off like you're. you're, you're, I I get that you like this guy a lot, but like he's not into you. I don't know what to tell you. He could, and like you clearly understand that he's into Ono. Like that's it. Like he's he loves he loves Akira, even if you know, even if he doesn't know it yet. And you know, he she clearly gets this. So I don't know. At some points, like the the stuff with like. The, where she's trying to get him into... Like, directly, literally just trying to get him into bed. It's just, like... You're coming off a little desperate, lady. I don't know what to tell you. Like, if you... I get I get Nicole's point that, like, if she was a, a guy and being this, like... Not just persistent, but, like... I don't know, over-the-top persistent or something, like, we would probably have a different opinion.
2: So, Yeah. Well, that was my one issue with this program. You know, according to you, this is something like wider phenomenon with anime. Like, the scene towards the end of season two, okay, spoilers, if you haven't seen it and you want to watch it, maybe skip forward a bit, but he's supposed to be, what, 16, 17 at the time and yeah. they're in a hotel room sharing a bed together and you know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but when I was that age, I was an absolute horn dog. <laughs> the fact that he's like lying in bed with this girl that he's really into and he's only thinking about video games. Yeah, without... he's like, we have to
1: go to sleep. We have a Street Fighter 2 tournament tomorrow. Right. And it's
2: like, okay. <laughs> I could totally buy him being like scared in that situation. Like, oh, you know, I really like this girl. I'm scared to do anything because I don't want to, you know, disappoint her or make a fool of myself or or whatever. But there's the fact that he's just thinking, oh, you know, we've got to get sleep because we've got this big <laughs> super Street Fighter tournament the next day. I was like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I
1: don't know. He's very, like I said, it, it is kind of an anime trope. And I assume this must be like, there must be people in Japan into this because it comes up over and over again, where well, you have, like, the teenage to young adult guy who, like, the girls want him, but he doesn't show any interest in that, and that, that trope comes up over and over and over again, so, um, you know, it's definitely not something they invented here, but yeah, I mean, he's just basically, you know, he's too pure for this world, he only cares about the video games, and, you know, he doesn't care about anything until you, except beating her in this video game, and, yeah it's very uh it is i mean i don't think it's i I think his character is very consistent i don't think it's like badly written but i get why if you watch it um you might be like what the fuck like why are you uh like why what kid why don't you like like this girl you know
2: yeah i mean i when i was a uh, nerdy teenager obsessed with video games and you know I I did not have <laughs> beautiful women throwing themselves at me like uh, this character does so <laughs> no points for realism but an enjoyable series nonetheless yeah but uh, that's that
1: kind of cool and I you know I like it a lot and you know I'm glad you liked it too and for people listening if you still want to listen to it after we I think spoiled half the series uh, you can find it on Netflix I think it was on Netflix for you too, or is that only in America? Yes, it is on Netflix. Okay, so Netflix, I think worldwide. Uh, also, like much like the matches we talk about here, you can find them. You can find it illicitly too.
2: So if you if you're into that,
1: but uh, Joel, anyway. can you
2: g- give me some another anime recommendation. What should I watch next? Uh, hmm. Well, you,
1: if you like the slice of lifey stuff, which is like what kind of a High score Girl is, I can give you two recommendations. I really liked recently um one is called blend s which is about like a like a maid cafe kind of thing but like it's really really funny and the other one is uh which is like a it's about like slightly older people which is nice for a change because anime is almost always about like teenagers and younger but these are about like people in their mid-20s at an office and it's like it's like some kind of love is hard for otaku and it's basically about like these very awkward nerd people trying to date which is it's really funny so i would highly recommend that one i think sure. it's a, a very, very similar vibe to high school girl it's much shorter i think it's only 11 episodes but you if you don't have amazon prime you'll have to go look forward it legally because it's only on prime i think legally but uh you know it's it's out there anyway i mean pretty much any anime you can find you know fan subs up pretty easily i think still so But yeah, those would be my two recommendations for similar shows, I think.
2: Okay, I will report back on our uh, end of year New Japan review episode, which (laughs) will be about, what, 20 minutes long?
0: (laughs) The end of,
1: yeah. So January and February were fucking awesome. And uh, (laughs) after that, yeah. I mean, that's really like, you know, the really annoying thing about all this shit. It's like, I was enjoying January and February like as much as I've ever enjoyed New Japan. And it's like, wow, everybody I like was being pushed. You know, not even just like Naito, but like all of LIJ and Taichi and Zack were going for the tag titles. And it's like...
2: Yeah, they fixed everything. Everything was perfect. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's like, fail horn. Here comes a fucking virus. But what are you going to do? I'm sure... Hopefully... I, I really just want them to fucking pick up where they left off when they come back. Don't fucking skip anything. Give me the Taichin Zack title challenge. Get, everyone in Lij has a two-year title reign. I don't give a fuck. Whatever. If it takes until twenty twenty-two, then they all get a four-year title reign. Whatever. But like, pick up where they left off. Don't fucking skip anything. That's my yeah. that's my request. But anyway, Sorry. so let's get into this week's five matches. Um, if this is somehow your first time listening to a five match episode, the Format is pretty simple. Uh, My guest picks two matches. I pick two matches. We definitely talk about those four. And then we also pick a third match, and those two third matches go to a fan vote. And we talk about the winner. That's the fifth match. And we don't talk about the loser. So we'll get to what won and lost when we get to the last match of the evening. But first, we're going to start with Joel's first pick, which was Chris Jericho versus Chris Benoit from world wrestling entertainment or i guess at this point world wrestling federation january 21st 2001 at the royal rumble uh this is a ladder match for the intercontinental title Uh, i guess joel first things first why did you pick this match did you pick it for me specifically or is there like some kind of history with the match what what's behind this choice
2: yeah well i talk a lot of new japan on the super j Cast, so i thought i'd try and pick something a bit different and some uh, matches outside of the company. And what I've tried to do is bring you US wrestling gimmick matches done well. So uh, when I was growing up, when I was at school, I missed out on the attitude here because I didn't have uh, Sky Sports, which was the channel that showed WWF. But um, so at school, when I was a young teenager, you know, kids running around in the playground saying, suck it, and doing moves on each other, stone cold, stunning each other left, right, and center. So I was just like, what is going on? I, I want to get involved in this. This this sounds kind of cool. And then in the UK, they started showing some WWF pay-per-views on free television on Channel 4, and they showed them live. So uh, this Royal Rumble 2001, I think it was one of the first pay-per-views that they showed on Channel 4. So I'd recorded it on VHS, uh, hoping that I could watch it unspoiled. And then, of course, I go into school the next day, and everyone's talking about how Stone Cold's won the Rumble. So I was like, oh, fuck. But anyway, I thought, <laughs> sit down and watch the whole thing anyway. So just imagine me as a a new fan of wrestling. Like this was the first show that I ever watched. And, you know, seeing this match, seeing the the intercontinental title looking incredibly prestigious, these two guys trying to kill each other over it. Like imagine this being the second ever wrestling match that you watch. So like for 13 year old me, this was the coolest shit I've ever seen. How great is Jericho's entrance? And, On that point, it blows my mind that 19 years later, I'll be watching him wrestle the semi-main event at the Tokyo Dome in front of 30,000 people. And uh, the first live wrestling show I actually went to was a a Raw show at the O2 Arena in April 2009. And Jericho was the first guy to come out there. So he's always been a fairly prominent guy throughout my wrestling fandom. Um, Maybe I should just stop watching wrestling when he retires. But yeah, that's why I, I picked this match, because it was... The second wrestling match that I ever watched. It's
1: yeah, that's so fun. Like one of the fun things about doing this series in general and hearing from other people is like all these points in wrestling that are just random points for me that are like you know really important to other people. Like for Jericho Benoit, at this point, I'm I guess I'm exactly well not two years older than you because you were thirteen when this when this was airing. You're saying yeah. right? I was so I would have been fourteen. And I would have been, I, so I would have turned 15 in May. But anyway, so like, but at this point, so we're almost the same age, but at this point, like I've been a wrestling fan already for like seven years. So like I, I got started very young because of like, uh, you know, just my, like my older cousin was really into it. That's why I first got into it when I was a little kid. So, you know, I, they, they hooked me very young. And like, so this show, I mean, I I remember Royal Rumble 2001, but it's not like it's something that is some, um, you know, turning point my wrestling fan or anything. It's just like, ah, oh, pretty good show that I, I think I watched on pay-per-view pay- pay at the time even, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very, you know, it's just funny to think about and be like, oh, this, this match that was like, yeah, it's a cool ladder match. Yeah. This is a cool show. Is like the entire starting point of the Joel Abraham's wrestling story.
2: Yeah. I must've watched this show like literally about a hundred times on that VHS tape.
1: Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, this is a, this is, you know, the Jericho Benoit feud. I mean, so you, did you ever go back and watch their stuff in 2000?
2: Uh, yeah, I've seen some of it. Like there was a, a triple threat match with Kurt Angle. Was it yeah. best two out of three? So I, so I
1: have the, I have the whole thing written down, but yeah, they they basically spent all of 2000 like trading wins and trading this belt. Basically where like Benoit won the belt WrestleMania 2000 and the three earth angle. That was also for the European title. Um, which that's a weird match, by the way. If you, if you if people let's say haven't seen it, where Angle was European and Intercontinental champion entering it, and they did two falls for some reason the Intercontinental the Intercontinental title fall was first. I guess they wanted to do that because Benoit, the heel was going to win the Intercontinental and Jericho the face was going to win the European. But like it was it just felt really anticlimactic to do. The more important belt that people actually cared about first, and then the the dumb belt that no one cared about second. It was very weird.
2: Uh, Uh, As as a European, I'm feeling very disrespectful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but you should take up your concerns with the WWF because they sure never gave a fuck about that belt. Fucking Shane McMahon held it for like eight months without fucking defending it or whatever, retired it, and then I think Midian like took it out of a bag of something. I mean, it was very, it was very stupid title.
2: Is it any less prestigious than any of the NXT UK titles?
1: Uh, I guess not, no. They just really hate your country, Joel. I hate to tell you. I hate
2: my country (laughs) as well. (laughs) (laughs)
1: As as a fellow country hater, I can understand. Uh, But yeah, so they had a match at Backlash where he retained by DQ. Uh, I guess Jericho won it on SmackDown in early May. And then Benoit won it back six days later at Raw. And then they had a submission match at Judgment Day where Benoit retained and that was kind of like the end for now, and they all they kind of went off and did their own thing for a few months. But then I know Benoit feuded with The Rock and uh, Jericho feuded with uh, Triple H. But then they got back together at SummerSlam without the belt this time because at this point I think it was on like Val Venus or something, uh, and it was like a two out of three falls match of SummerSlam 2000. And then this world is basically like the end point of this feud. Now, um, you know they. Benoit won the belt back from Billy Gunn at Armageddon two thousand a month earlier, which is supposedly like a famous kind of a famous match in that like I guess at the time the w w f would use Chris Benoit as like a measuring stick of wrestlers because it's like okay, you should be able to have a good match with chris Benoit i mean whatever else he did as a person, he was an incredibly good professional wrestler, and it really was not difficult to have a good match with him. And Billy Gunn failed the Chris Benoit test, is the long and short of it. So, uh, his push as the one Billy Gunn came to an end after he lost that match to Benoit. He failed Uh, the Hiroshi
2: Tanahashi test as well.
1: (laughs) Uh, And that set up this ladder match. Basically, the final blow to the feud after this, like, I know they were in a four way the following month, but then they would be like allies pretty soon. Like, they would team up together after WrestleMania uh, 17 which I remember as a kid, absolutely loving that. It's like these two that killed each other and now like, you know, teaming up against the common enemies of William Regal and Kurt Angle. Like that stuff was really fun. But, uh, you know, even going back, I, w- I watched some of it recently and like the Rods and Smackdowns and that was one of the more natural, like sometimes the, the two rivals become, like the two rivals turning into teammates thing is done so often by WWE now that like I think people are really sick of it and really hate it. But, and it's usually like, completely nonsense. Like I remember that when uh, I forget what it is. I think it's like, like Cesaro and
2: Seamus. Best a, of seven. Huh? It was a best of seven series.
1: Yeah. And then it ends. And uh, like, I think the on the last night of it, right? Like some GM comes out and is like, uh, so you guys are going to team now. And they're, like, fucking cool what? with this. They're, almost, they're, like, cool with this immediately. I'm, I'm like, you guys are trying to kill each other. What are you talking about? Whereas with Benoit and Jericho, at least they were apart for a while before they, like, they, they have this blow-off. I guess they're in a four-way together or something at No Way Out. But then after that, you know, they both go off on their separate feuds for a few months, and then by the time they come back together and as teammates, it makes total sense because, like, you know, they're up Drop against this commissioner, William Regal, who's being a complete asshole to both of them. And they just kind of like, you know, I don't know. Like the way they booked it was actually very good. So I'm aware of 2
2: power trip as well. They were against Austin yeah, and Triple H. A, a, a,
1: eventually they would go up against Austin Triple H. But the thing that made them come together was like, William Regal took an interest in like, was, was already tormenting Jericho. And then he started tormenting Benoit too, because he, was allies with Kurt Angle and they just kind of came together like fuck this guy. And it did feel natural and it worked. So like I don't know. It was uh like watching that stuff back, that's that has to be like one of the better book times they ever did the rivals becoming partners thing. So a rare praise for world wrestling entertainment booking on this podcast. But that was good. Uh yeah. as, far, as far as his match though um, this is this match is awesome. <laughs> I mean, you can talk about it. What what about what what, what do you love about this match?
2: Well, I, I mean, let me preface this by saying I generally hate ladder matches like that uh, they fucking takeover... suck. I do. Right, that takeover <laughs> six man the North American title match, hated that. Uh the, the three-way at MSG for the ROH New Japan shot was bored out of my mind. I, but
1: people love that match, like the ring of Honor, or at least say oh it wasn't that bad. I wanted to fucking like I don't know, like stab myself to escape it. It was so fucking long and terrible. I, and, and Nicole went with me to that show, and she looked over at me like she's like, "When is this gonna end?" And I was like, "I don't know. It's going forever, and it's awful." I, I I totally agree with you. I normally, I, first of all, I mean ladder matches were, were one thing, and you know, like event, like maybe around this time we just weren't all burnt out on them yet. But I never want to see another ladder match again. I fucking can't stand them anymore.
2: Yeah, I definitely think they sort of run out of creative ways of doing them. And I mean, this is my favourite ladder match. Probably skewed my appreciation of them henceforth, given that it was the first one that I watched. And in my opinion, it's basically flawless. Like, it feels like two guys having a fight and the ladder is a logical part of that fight rather than a a series of contrived uh, ladder stunts with no connective tissue, which I think is what modern ladder matches feel like to me. Like, they're they're using the, the turnbuckles, the stairs, the ropes chairs and they'll use the ladder if it's there and it's convenient uh, and it makes sense and it gives the whole match like an air of authenticity and also keeps you on your toes as a viewer because the ladder might get set up and then you forget about it because something else is going on and then there'll be a big spot where the ladder comes back into play where you're like oh shit the ladder I forgot about the ladder and in this match the people even starting to boo and and get disgruntled the first time Benoit climbs the ladder it was only about five minutes in like they actually think there's a chance he's going to win and I love that and it's just like almost bizarre here in a hot crowd for this company, but uh, <laughs> I, I guess we need to talk about that Tope chair shot. Because well, before we do
1: that, I want to because I, I want to totally agree with your point. I think why this match works and why all the other ladder matches don't is because, like you said, they have a fucking wrestling match, and the ladder is involved. The entire I feel like every ladder match now is just you know ladder, 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 ladder. ladder. Like we set up five hundred ladders. You know, there's. It's usually multiple people all doing like a million dives off of them. They're not. They're not having a wrestling match anymore, right? They're just, you know, doing ladder spots. And it's like you can only. It's the same thing as what I talked about a few weeks ago with like the the Toriyama three way multi man tag, which is like it's awesome the first time you see it, but like you can only see the exact same multi man Toriyama Dragon Gate spots before they're just boring. And like this is someone needs to do this lap. Someone needs to watch this fucking match have two wrestlers face each other, not six of them, and do this fucking match. Maybe leave off the tope leave out the tope page hair shot, but like, other than that, like, there's nothing in this match that's as dangerous as, like, you know, other than that tope page hair shot, probably. There's, like, there are way more dangerous spots than some of these modern ladder matches. So if you go back and do this match, you know, do have an actual fucking wrestling match again that involves a ladder instead of a, you know, just nothing but ladder spots, I think you can maybe revitalize this match type, but yeah, I—I I mean, it's—it's it's the most played out. Like, I—I do—I never roll my eyes harder than when there's a ladder match. Basically, like it's just like please, I don't want to see any more ladder matches. Um, but yeah, the, go ahead. The Tope chair spot—it's uh—that was hard to watch given what how Mr. Benoit's life ended.
2: Yeah, it's one of the the most wince-inducing moves in wrestling history, if you ask me. And it's so unexpected. Like the chair just comes out of nowhere. The sound cracks through the whole arena. It's genuinely shocking. And, but aside from that, there are some really good moments where something elaborate is set up, and you think you know what's going to happen, but then it's subverted. Like There's a bit where Jericho is tipping the ladder towards Benoit when he's lying across the barricade. So I, I think in these kind of matches, it's really important to mix it up with spots that don't land as much as those that do, which, which again is a facet that's been lost in these modern ladder matches where you can see all the spots coming a mile away. And again, later on in the match, there's a bit where you think it's going to be a Jericho superplex from the top of the ladder, but it turns out to be a diving headbutt spot for Benoit, which he misses too. So it's so good. And there's a consistent story throughout this with Benoit targeting Jericho's shoulder. And I, I think some of the best ladder matches have also been body part matches, especially when you think of the first Money in the Bank ladder match where Benoit did an amazing job selling his arm. And like everything Benoit does in this match centers around him. Trying to fuck up Chris Jericho's shoulder as much as he can, like rather than set up some fancy giffable ladder sculptures for someone to inevitably fall through. And th- there are some terrific spots in this match, but none of them feel contrived like that. They feel they feel organic. Like Benoit and Jericho happen to be having a struggle at this particular area over the ladder, which naturally leads to the ladder falling over or, or smacking them in the face in a way that doesn't ruin your suspension of disbelief. And uh, there's a bit near the end where Jericho. Locks in a kind of Walls of Jericho and Benoit's bent backwards over the top of the ladder, and it toes that line, but it's the kind of spot that would probably end a modern ladder match. But Benoit, he falls off, he lands next to the ladder, and it makes complete sense that he just stick up a leg and push the ladder over, even though he's just been put through the ringer. So, yeah, like I said, all these spots feel like the wrestlers thinking on their feet; they're getting desperate. Like I've got about three seconds before he gets up. I'm going to try this, even though most of the time it doesn't work. Like. Jericho trying to pin Benoit under the ladder and then it's really satisfying when it all goes arse over tit and and lends more drama, more uncertainty to the finish when you're wondering, you know, is Benoit going to make it back to the ring in time to stop Jericho so everything looks real and painful uh, and nasty, pacing spot on it's the perfect ladder match for me Um, so the only thing the other,
1: I said like a spot that no one should ever recreate, there's another one please don't ever do a diving headbutt off the top of a ladder and miss again that looked like it sucked too. Speaking of concussion, concussion city. Here. Um But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of six spots in this match and it's a really awesome match. The only thing that takes it down for me is the finish, which is really underwhelming. I think after all this ridiculous shit, like Jericho, like pushes the ladder over. Benoit kind of like bounces on the top rope and then falls to the floor and Jericho sets up the ladder and Benoit as a camera, like the camera just shouldn't have shown him because like, you can clearly see that he's fine, and that like he doesn't do a, he like weirdly does a very bad job at telling that he can't get back in the ring. Like he, yeah. he climbs up and like he like falls back down, but like he looks like he's fine. Like I don't know how to describe this for the for the listener at home to really explain it, but like you know what I can you know what it reminds me of? Did you ever see that terrible TNA reverse battle royal? Where like the the first step of it was to get was for everyone to to get in the ring, so people had to pretend it was really hard to get in the ring. When like you said to get in the ring, I mean there was really no no one stopping you most of the time. That's what it reminded me of. Like Benoit clearly could get back up; he was clearly fine. He wasn't doing a good job at all. Like he should sure just stayed down. He would like get up and like fall back down and get up and like like act like he was like in quicksand or something. It looked it looked really awful, and it was like the only thing in this match that looked bad. But it looked so bad that I took off like a half a star. Like, I, I can't – I really hate the finish. So I went four and a half. But, uh, you know, it's still a ridiculous bump fest that, like, you know, is really, really good. But, uh, yeah, I just had to bring that up. The finish really
2: annoys me after all the crazy shit they did. That's a good point, actually, because after the match finishes and Joko's celebrating with a belt, this is like seconds after he's taken it down. Benoit's standing on the outsides. And he's just looking a bit tired and pissed off. Like, he's not selling the effects of the absolute war he's been through. He's just, yeah. like, just like, oh, I can't believe I lost that.
1: Yeah. I mean, they should have come with a better finish. That was That's a big critique. If, they, if, they, if it has a finish that makes more sense, it doesn't look as bad. It's probably a five-star match. But uh, that's pretty much – I just really, really hate that finish. But there you go. Other than that, awesome match so let's go to my first pick which was shinsuke nakamura versus hiroki goto from new japan on april 4th 2010 um i wanted to pick some new japan matches that i thought you may not have seen and you know later on you told me you've seen almost no nakamura so that worked out really well um but yeah so i thought and plus i just absolutely adore this match but this is for the iwgp heavyweight title at the new dimension show at corican hall um so Goto Nakamura, they already had a long history at this point. Um, Goto had gone on an excursion in 2006. He had been like a junior heavyweight up until then, believe it or not, I know that seems hard to believe now. But he was a, you know, he was a junior in the CTU heel faction, which was like Liger, uh, Gato, Jado. Um,
2: we spoke about this on the Super J Cast that most Japanese wrestlers lose weight when they're in Mexico because of the food, but he just oh, yeah, like. That's as is a heavyweight.
1: Yeah, that's right. And he, So he stopped in TNA and then did an extended time in Mexico, like you said. Uh, he returned to New Japan in 2007. He joined up with uh, Shinsuke Nakamura's RISE unit, which was an acronym for Real International Super Elite. It was basically the new unit that formed out of Black, which had been uh, Masahiro Chono's unit with the with, uh, Nakamura was in, along with like Milano and Giant Bernard and a bunch of people that were in it. And they they were the heel unit, I guess. I don't I don't remember exactly when GBH started, because whenever GBH started, they took over the mantle as a real heel unit. So, you know, Black and then Rise were sort of like in the same spot that Lij is in now, and that Chaos was in for a while, where like they're not heels because they every time they fight they fight the real heels of GBH. They were the baby faces, but they were still more heelish than the the main army. You know, so that was Rise's position in two thousand seven. Um, but yeah, so they that so that would kind of like at, at the same time they were in this unit together. Though they already had like a little you know rivalry brewing, where they they went you know Goto beat Nakamura in the 2008 G1, which was you know kind of a big upset at the time. And then he would go on to win that G1, um, you know that was even a, a really really shocking G1 win at the time. And you know he would go on to lose his IWGP title shot against Keiji Muto uh, which happened at an All Japan show a month later for some reason. One of the weirdest uh, <laughs> G1 title shots, I guess. But then Goto followed that up. He bought. He beat Nakamura again in the March in the uh, the 2009 New Japan Cup in March, um, and that was the second round. And he would go on to win that too. And then, of course, he lose his IWGP title shot against Tanahashi. Um, a month after that, in 2009, Nakamura turned heel uh, in that match with Togi Makabe. You know, it's kind of a famous match where. Toriyano turns on Makabe and you know the Toriano, of course, been in GBH and they they were like the the most violent players. And then, you know, they, eventually all of GBH sided with Nakamura except for of course Tomuaki Hanma. And that's why if you're ever wondering why GBH is two people all the time, Makabe and Halma, that's why. Um but yeah, so they were going they would form Chaos, which is you know, which was the top heel stable in New Japan for many years before they, you know, before they their their few but Suzuki Goon after that feud, that formed kind of turned them into that like true neutral unit and then they were you know the baby faces against Suzuki Goon and Bullet Club and then eventually they were just baby faces completely and now they're just you know they basically don't exist. I mean they are they're they team with the main army so often there's really no reason for them to exist. But there you go. Um so rise came to like a quiet end and Goto rejoined the Goon, and this basically turned Nakamura and Goto from like friendly rivals into far more bitter rivals. And that's kind of how they would stay for the rest of Nakamura's new Japan career. And then he beat Goto finally in the 2009 G1, uh, where he would go on to lose in the finals to Makabe, but then he beat Makabe in late 2009 to win the vacant IWGP heavyweight title after uh, Tanahashi, he fractured his eye socket is what happened. So that sounds brutal, but thankfully he was able to come back from that. So all that leads us to here. Uh, Goto wins the New Japan Cup for the second straight year, in March 2010, and he beat he beat Togi Mikave actually in the finals. So you can see these people, these dudes are all like kind of in the mix at this point. And you know this title shot against Nakamura Korokin was his big reward. This is already his fourth shot at the title. So it's 2010. And he's already have. This is already going to be his fourth failed title title challenge. Uh, we I mentioned the ones he got for winning the last New Japan Cup in the G1. He also failed to beat Tanahashi in 2007. Um, as we stand right now, he's had eight title shots and lost every single one of them. Um, but I don't think people, I didn't even, I totally like didn't realize this until I looked it up. He hasn't challenged the IWGP heavyweight title since he lost to Okada at new beginning Osaka in 2016. So it's been four plus years. It was kind of crazy, but basically once he joined chaos after he lost that Okada match, he's never challenged for the title again. So I don't know if that's a good career move on his part, but, uh, there you go. But, yeah, so uh, first, I guess as far as the match goes, uh, Joel, what do you think of Goto and Nakamura?
2: Right, first of all, I'd give a shout-out to my friend Manabu, who's been filling me with a lot of the hi- historical stuff, a lot of the stuff you've mentioned there. And also I think it's worth mentioning that it's kind of unusual to have an IWGP title match at Korakuen, and, and it's only happened eight times and changed yeah. hands once.
1: It happened a lot in this era, though, I think. Like, I think there was a – there's like a couple famous ones with Nagata – there's a big one with Nakanishi. and in 2012 there's Okada and Naito, and that's the final one I think in like uh, March or April 2012. The issue was like they didn't they, they were not running a big show for the spring at this point, so I think Invasion Attack started in 2013. So like Invasion Attack basically replaced this weird spring korokin where they would have a title match. So
2: yeah, well I mean back to the match I. Right? I liked it. I thought it was good. But I've got two problems with it, right? The first problem we've got here is that this is pre excursion Nakamura. So he comes out to subconscious with the normal hair and the normal outfit and he's walking normally you're like, "Oh, is is this Nakamura?" And you know, most of us know his backstory like he that he entered New Japan in 2002 with uh, same class as Taguchi, Yoshitatsu. He didn't go through the the traditional young lion phase training MMA. So maybe not as well-rounded as other wrestlers. Some would say that he was pushed too much too soon. But he does, in this match, have his really cool Arsenal knee-based attacks, which uh, I believe he picked up after his first fight, his MMA fight with Alexei Ignashov, when he was knocked out. He, he tried to shoot in for a takedown and got knee in the face, which he actually does in this match to Goto, which I thought was pretty cool. And I think he debuted the Bombay in the, the G1 against Subura. So he's got all his kicks and his knees, and that's really good. And, like, 90% of this match is Nakamura kicking and kneeing Goto. Uh, goto with his nice purple knickers but that brings me on to the second issue here which is hiroki goto himself because uh damon and i talked about his title match with tanahashi at sumo ball in 2007 last week which is arguably his best match and i think in that match goto shows the most diverse moveset there at least but watching this match like back to back with the 2007 tanahashi match it, it looks like goto's actively regressed like his moves are less interesting showing less passion. There's no real levels to the performance. Maybe it's not his fault, because if you look at his recent career history at this point, we had uh, that Nakamura Goto against Misawa Sugiyura match at the Dome, Wrestle Kingdom 3. So, at that time, Goto's still protected. Then he lost to Sugiyura at Dominion, and I, I hear New Japan fans were really disappointed at that one. And then he lost to Sugira again at the G1 in Sumo Hall. And after that, in 2010, January 4, Tokyo Dome wrestle 4, he lost to Sugira again. So at that point, his credibility is kind of in the toilet. And those three failed title shots up to the point that you've mentioned. And he does have his consecutive New Japan cuts, we we'll given that. But absolutely nobody thought that he would beat Nakamura in this match from from what I gather. And, I can see that in his eyes here, John, like his spirit has already been crushed. He's settled the in crowd's his role. Still,
0: in-
1: the crowd's still really behind him though, which is kind of, kind of interesting. Like you'd think after all that, the crowd would not care, but they were like really into him and they wanted, like they were rooting him on pretty passionately.
2: Yeah. I, I hear that. And you're not wrong, but I just, maybe this is just me viewing Gotto with 2020 Gotto eyes that yeah. like, I feel he settled into his role as a, an upper mid card gatekeeper at this point, you know, like the jobber to the stars and him, getting his head kicked in for 20 yeah. minutes uh, to make Nakamura hmm. look good. Says it yeah, all. I think it's a little early to say he settled.
1: I think where he settles in is really when Okada beats him, like, 50 times in a row or yeah. whatever.
2: When he does like body paint, waterfall yeah. shit, that was like the um, last
1: straw. I don't even – yeah, that was the last straw. I even think it was before that when he just lost, like – I don't know. He, he was, like – I feel like he there was, like, two straight Okada reigns where he was, like, the first – the sacrificial first challenger at that point it felt like okay well this guy's never gonna fucking do anything he just he just gets his ass kicked every time okada wins the belt but yeah um you know at this point i feel like he still had like there was still hope there even though that like, you went over some of the the booking issues with him but like the crowd was still really behind him here and you know i thought i i guess we maybe we view him getting his ass kicked differently but like the fact that he takes such a beating from nakamura and then like still fires back up for every time and just keeps coming back i thought was like one of the things that makes the match really awesome and you know the crowd being super behind him as you know he keeps he keeps fucking taking these knees and these you know nakamura is like destroying him with these knees and these kicks but goto like you know like just fires up with these really hard lariats and There's, like, a great moment where, like, er, even really early on where, like, he really has enough of Shinsuke's shit after Shinsuke, like, steps on his face and, you know, like, was pushing him on the ropes of the headlock. He just drops him on his head with his backdrop, and, the crowd, like, roars. Like, I thought that really set up the entire story of the match where, like, you know, Nakamura is a complete dick to him and beats the shit out of him. But every time, Goto just keeps getting back up and keeps firing back up, and the crowd just gets more and more behind him every time he does. But, yeah, um... You know, it it starts out with like the the rolling around the mat stuff that I I personally find entertaining, but I get that others don't. But I always thought Nakamura one of his strengths was making his mat wrestling uh, slash like feeling out periods like fast and exciting, which is something I think Okada kind of struggles at nowadays. Um, you know, and there's like a lot of really cool stuff here. Um, Nakamura like he turns a pinfall attempt from Goto after a top rope elbow drop into a triangle arm bar with like this really smooth movement movement. That was awesome. Um, You know, Shinsuke, I thought was, I thought he sold really well here, which was I thought always a really underrated aspect of his game when he had to sell. like go to at one point does like a top rope neck breaker and Shinsuke sells it. Like his neck is broken. Um, And then like the the stretch run though, which where this match goes from like already awesome to just being outstanding for me. We're like, you know goto he blocks the bamaya he turns it into Ushigoroshi the crowd is like losing their minds for this and you know it only gets two there's like this awesome like armbar reversal spot where nakamura tries to get the cross arm breaker which was like he was finishing matches with at that point and goto like turns it into this like reverse not quite a fujira armbar more like a stretch but it, it was really good reversal and nakamura makes the ropes and then they, they go into the. This- slap battle go to the standing lariat where nicole was sitting next to me and was like i thought he killed him <laughs> i mean like it looked one of the more brutal standing lariats i ever say after they also were like do, doing these straight punches and these this go to a headbutt uh, i watched that whole sequence like six times and nakamura's like mouth guard goes flying off that lariat. it's so awesome um but then Nakamura he counters a Goto sliding lariat attempt with a really fast counter knee, basically, which looked awesome and you know looked really really smooth and ah uh, natural. And he finally hits another bombing gate for the pin, which you can see. You know how behind Goto was that deflates the crowd when Nakamura wins. Like there's not a big reaction for that for that win. It's like almost like a Dragon Gate uh, title defense for like they they really did not want the heel to win, and like the crowd does not. You know, it's not—it's not a reaction you hear often in of New Japan, but the crowd was not happy when Nakamura retained, so they were really behind Goto. But uh, yeah, I—I I, I can already tell that you don't love this match nearly as much as I do, but I adore this match. Um, you know, it, it's a really interesting snapshot to me of like a New Japan in transition, where you know they still have a lot of these strong style stuff, like the you know vaguely amateurist match. Like I mean, like amateur wrestling not like amateur like insult but the very the amateur wrestling esque matt wrestling to start the emphasis on arm bars um but it really still packs in like a hell of a closing stretch that's much more like what you what would go on to be like the signature new japan style uh but without approaching maybe these silly levels of like you know the counter dancing or anything so i love this match i have four three quarters it's one of my favorites for both men
2: yeah, I didn't hate it. I thought it was a, a, a very good match, but just, yeah, maybe the fact that I thought there was no chance Gotto was going to win, that uh, somewhat compromised the dramatic integrity of the match for me.
1: Wait, do you do, star, you do you not do star ratings? I don't remember.
2: Um, if I had to put a star rating on this, uh, maybe three, three and three quarters, four stars yeah,
1: around that. A full star apart, wow. Uh and then afterwards Makabe, uh Makabe comes out and lays out Nakamura to Lariat and tells him to fuck off, which is funny. And he would actually take the title off him for the first and only time of his career a month later at Wrestling Dentaku, thus ending amazingly Shinsuke Nakamura's final IWGP title reign. So I mean it's crazy that he that this this is his third and last reign in twenty ten when he's uh he's he's here for six more years. So
2: Do you think he would have got it again had he not left?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Eventually, I think I, I think they were setting it up, but we'll talk about that when we get to the second, the other Nakamura match because there's there's interesting stuff there. I think. Uh, okay, so your second pick, Aztec Warfare Two, Lucha Underground, December 12, twenty fifteen, from their second season. Uh, this is where I can tell you I've never seen a single second of Lucha Underground before. I never watched the program at all. This is my first exposure to, to Lucha Underground. Um, all I can do is tell you the match participants. So let me do that really quickly. There's a lot. Uh, it's Phoenix, who's the, it's for the Lucha Underground title. He's the champion. So it's Phoenix, ray Mysterio Jr., Joey Ryan, Jack Evans, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Johnny Mundo, Mil Mortes, Texano. I'm mis- mispronouncing all these, I'm sure. Prince Puma, Drago, Cage, who's Brian Cage, star Marty Martinez, King Corno, PJ Black, Arjitus, the Mac, Willie Mac, Dragon S. Tekka Jr., Taya Valkyrie, uh, the monster Matinza Cueto, we'll get to who that is in, later, and Masquerita Segreta. So uh, I guess, Joel, it, like, tee this t- t- up for me. Why'd you pick it? And uh, then I'll tell you what I think of it, I guess.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it might surprise you to learn that I was a big Lucha Underground fan back in the day. I, I lost interest around season three, but I thought for the first two seasons, it was tremendous fun. I like the, the intimate, grimy aesthetic, and it's got those campy, tongue-in-cheek Rob Rod backstage vignettes and what I thought was some pretty great wrestling it's kind of like what things like the Boneyard match thinks it is but it isn't and I nearly picked Phoenix versus Mil Muertes the Grave Consequences match from season one because I think that's uh, the best bell-to-bell match in the show's history but I couldn't resist Aztec warfare because I'm a huge fan of Rumble style matches anyway I absolutely love this match at the time and I also think it's interesting to look at from a like where are they now perspective to see uh, this this weird mix of wrestlers from all different promotions now, and, and see how the landscape of US wrestling's changed over the last four to five years.
1: Okay, so here's where I'm gonna I'm gonna disappoint you, Joel. I I did not like this at all. <laughs> I just, it was like something about being dropped into this promotion, I guess, right in the middle of it, and not having any idea what was going on. It just it didn't work for me at all. I guess it was a standalone match. Like you know, there was some cool flippy shit, which. Is cool and stuff but like it it felt like it went on forever and i don't know it just it, i i like we'll get to like the the individual parts but like as far as the thing as a whole um you know it just mostly it, it was it dragged for me i don't know i just was very like i was like who are these people what is going on why is joey ryan handcuffing himself who is this random man trying to give him a business card there's just so much here where i felt like yeah maybe this was great and made sense if you were watching the show all this time, but none of it made any sense to me. And, like, I mean, and the announcers, I I think the announcers need to do a better job explaining what the fuck was going on. It felt like there was they basically assumed that anyone watching was watching every week, which you know I maybe I'm like cursing them based on what WWE does, but I'm not saying you have to treat every fucking viewer like they've never seen your show or wrestling in general. You know, every time, but a little bit of backstory would be nice. Like, there, I feel like there's a happy medium there, where like they explain, you know, oh, this, yeah, that's right, this guy's doing this because of this. Like, just like I, a line or two about some of these people would have really helped. Where it just felt like, you know, okay, here's another person. Uh, I don't know what their deal is, but sure. Uh, why is this person doing this? I don't understand. It's very like, so that there, there was a level to it that I just felt like, okay, I can't really enjoy this on the. Same level, I'm sure Joel enjoyed this because I have no clue what's going on. But, um, you know, like I said, there were still some impressive looking spots and stuff. It took me a little bit even to figure out what the rules were because they didn't even say that at the start of the match. Um, you know, they do, but I figured out that it was just pinfalls and not over the top rope for a, for a rumble. Um, but yeah, that's my general feeling on it. It's not, it wasn't a super enjoyable watch.
2: Yeah, that's a fair criticism. I mean, I obviously enjoyed this because I was watching the product at the time and know all the little storylines going into this. So, uh, well, let's do the deep dive there. I mean, First of all, Melissa Santos, what do you think of where you look at her? Because for me, the first thing that springs to mind, unfortunately, I mean, she's a great announcer, is the moment when she was talking about Brian Cage's yummy penis on Twitter. I can't get that out of my head, unfortunately. But uh,
1: um, I, even, I don't even know what you're talking about.
2: So What? Okay. Well, it was a big... <laughs> Back in the day, trust me. I think it was when I first joined Voices of Wrestling, so maybe that's stuck in my head. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so the guy who was handing out cards—that's famous B. He was trying to collect new clients, so he was trying to recruit people for this match. So yeah, uh, Phoenix—he's like the newly crowned champion in the big underdog spot, and I thought he did some great single stuff in Lucha Underground. I'd like to see some more of that in AEW. Like, I don't want to say Pentagon is holding him back, but I just—I'm more interested in him as a singles wrestler than a tag wrestler, and then. Uh, Rey Mysterio number two. That was a big surprise for me. It's a huge surprise for the live crowd. I thought he was a really good fit in Lucha Underground. So obviously a guy who's back with WWE. I thought it was a neat way to start the match. It was like a it's a bit of a dream match to have Phoenix against Rey Mysterio. I'm not sure they've ever had a singles match together. Uh, King Cueno, he he's uh, El Hijo del Fantasma. So another guy who's been hoovered up by WWE. And again, I thought he was good in Lucha Underground. He's got one of the best suicide dives in the business. Uh, so he signed with NXT last August. John, do you know how many televised NXT matches he's had in the past nine months? I'm going to guess zero. Well, he's had two actually. So oh, wow. <laughs> you you went below that. He's in the cruiserweight title tournament. Is it one and one? So I think things are looking good for him. Uh, Wait, so
1: it, so it took him like eight months to get on TV. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. Uh, they NXT's need all these work. people. They need all these people though, John. Oh,
2: they need people, though, Joel. They need oh definitely. You know,
1: that's why they. That's why they they're they're immediately. We're, that's why they immediately cut ten thousand people. Uh at the moment they they're fucking stock they need to boost the stock price because all these people are necessary
2: anyway. Yeah, totally. So uh we got our hennis who's working for triple I he's a bit of a job here, but he's just there to give someone for Ray Mysterio to pin. Johnny Mundo, I think he did his best work in Lucha underground with Ricochet. So that's uh three people signed for WWE so far. Uh so Joey Ryan, he was playing this like sleazy, cowardly bent policeman gimmick, which I found infinitely more interesting than the penis stuff he does. So given his storyline in the company. The handcuffs made sense. Uh, and he's like a running joke in this match, as he just gets clowned on by everyone. Uh, Prince Puma, so obviously that's, that's Ricochet. The whole promotion was built around him. And rightly so, because he's an incredible wrestler. Maybe a bit odd to put him behind a mask, but I think the quality of his matches in Lucha Underground spoke for themselves. Um, I mean, it's not as good as the Osprey New Japan stuff. But it's not too far behind, and... Now he's, he's what, losing to Brendan Vink and Shane Thorne in <laughs> empty arena Raw in under five minutes to the surprise of uh, absolutely nobody, apart from maybe Trevor Mann himself. But uh, anyway, he felt like a big star in this company, however crappy their contract situations were. So we've got Jack Evans, who's in AEW now. I thought he was, again, good fit in Lucha Underground, did some fun tag stuff with PJ Black, had a really good singles match with Aerostar. They, they were feuding with Aerostar and Drago at the time, so... Maybe I'm doing a better job uh, filling you in on the stories than the announcers did. So uh, we got Tyre now with Impact. Uh, she's part of Johnny Mundo's worldwide underground stable along with Jack Evans. So there was some fun teamwork action in the match. Uh, Cage, and, and I always love it in these kind of matches when a big man enters a rumble and all the smaller guys bump like crazy for them. And they built on some of the storylines between Johnny Mundo and Taya, uh, who's also now with Impact. Cage, um, he had some fun matches in this company with the Mac and Pentagon and Prince Prima and, it was a fun three-way with Mil Muertes and Sammy Callahan, and, and I think Lucha Underground knew how to book him well. He always looked impressive to me, but he usually does to a fan who's seen Brian Cage for the first time until you, you realise his limitations. Uh, Masquerita Sagrada, I, I don't think he's done anything since Luke Underground finished. It's just had a comic relief spot. But it, I thought it was cool that he got a moment teaming up with Ray to take out Marty Martinez, who uh, I don't know what Martinez is up to. He's bouncing around the Indies. Had some good matches with Pentagon and Killshot, a.k.a. Shane Strickland uh and uh, yeah drago's triple a uh the mac willie mac uh impact so him uh going after marty was a nice bit of story continuity because they had a feud before and he had an ongoing beef with cage and chavo going after mascarita showing himself like a bully i thought that was cool uh pj black the formerly justin gabriel wwe so he's with roh now i think uh aerostar so yeah he was in the tag feud with drago against pj and jack evans uh, Dragon Azteca Jr. So that's Ray Horace now with ROH. Uh, Tejano is I think he's Triple A. His last two matches were against uh, Dave the Clown and Psycho Clown. So uh, according to Cage Match, he appears to be exclusively engaging in um, clown-based feuds these days. Uh, and then Mil Muertes, he I think is with CMLL now and. So he gets jumped by Pentagon, which I thought was a really good way to keep their story going, but also take him out of the match before Matanza arrived. And the same in getting Cage out of there. So Mil Moretas and Cage were two guys who might have made Matanza look less physically impressive, and it left all the smaller guys in the ring who Matanza could just ragdoll. And then just a little hat to Dario Cueto, who a lot of people might have recognised in the recent series of Kirby Enthusiasm. And then, yeah, from the favourite, my favourite moment this match is the 21st entrant, Matanza Cueto. Uh, also known as Jeff Cobb and and this is kind of like this year's WWE Royal Rumble but in reverse and you know it's an interesting choice to have a guy in his first match in the promotion win the world title but I thought Lucho Underground executed it so well in this you know weird comic book world they've got where Matanza he he was debuting after months like literally months of sinister build-up as this number one uh, plus one entrant and it was like a previously fast paced match, just like crashes into a brick wall, but in a good way. And he's just laying out everyone with his whole move set. And yeah, like quite a, a gutsy booking decision, but I thought it really worked. And the eliminations were laid out in a neat way too. So like, first of all, he pins Phoenix, who is the champion first to show what threat he is. And he, he no sells the max finisher and Aerostar's does flippy stuff. He just swats aside Tejano goes after him with a rope. The rope does nothing. he's strong enough to break the, the metal. Joey Ryan's handcuffs, and after all that, he's still able to take out a top prospect like Dragon Azteca, and then he can do the, the aerial stuff, the standing shooting star press with Chavo, and then the, the double team by you know legend like Rey Mysterio and the ace of the company, Prince Puma. So they have taken out Mil Muertes before, but they can't take Matanza out. And I thought it was a really cool closing stretch with Rey Mysterio where you think like maybe he's going to recreate his Royal Rumble win of 10 years ago with the same move that eliminated Randy Orton back then, but Matanza just plucks him out of the air, Destroys him with the wrath of the gods. I thought it looked incredible. So I thought really good booking, and and I like how the way he used like a wide variety of his power moves to eliminate people. You know, it's not like Brock Lesnar where he's just like spamming German suplexes over and over again. Because aside from the wrath of the gods, there's like a, a triple rolling gut wrench power bomb. There's the standing shooting star press. He does a bridging German. He's got a choke slam. He's got a set out power bomb which I thought made him look really powerful. Like all his moves are strong enough to beat half the roster. And then he's saving his big finisher for, for the top guys like Phoenix and Ray. So uh, I also thought Cobb showed good acting chops here as this like abused man child when he's looking at the belt in com- complete confusion at the end. So uh, yeah, I, I picked this cause I just thought it was a tight, cohesive, well put battle role that continued old feuds uh, uh, and started up a few new ones. It got Jeff Cobb over as like a literal monster and made me excited to see what would happen next in the show. Like, lots of little touches to to add to these storylines, and it's exactly what I want to this kind of match, but uh, I appreciate that uh, for someone who doesn't follow the product, it it was a bit confusing.
1: Yeah, it was very, you know, it just kind of felt like stuff would happen, and I'd be like, okay. (laughs) Like, like at one point when Johnny Mundo comes in and breaks that cinder block over KJ's head, I'm like, uh was he eliminated is he still in the match he's coming back out why is he attacking this man with a cinder block what's going on there's a lot of that so i don't know it's not like it's uh i don't want to say it was bad or anything i, I mean i could tell that there's good stuff i will say the, the thing at the end with jeff cobb that i didn't enjoy at all and maybe it gets better as it goes along but like first of all i just don't think he was a super convincing monster like he's not that much bigger than everybody else so to sort of, to, to do the, I mean, he's not taller for sure, but he, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's got the muscle mass, I guess, but like at some points it felt like the, the complete Kane 1997, no selling of everything just felt like a little over the top. And I just wish they would have let him do like more actual spots at least than just like, I don't know. It just didn't, it just didn't work for me. So, you know, the last thing with Ray was by far the most irritating part but, like, before that, you know, the crowd really didn't like this at all. And I, you, you watch longer, so maybe they get behind it later. But, like, they seemed like they were really annoyed by, you know, the the Cobb monster push and not in a good way. Like, they were just, like, it had that, like, lightly booing slash, like, you know, silence reaction that, like, WWE gets a lot nowadays. So that just felt like it went on. It felt like it went on forever. And it just didn't really it like that dried even more than the rest of the match for me it just felt like you know I want this to be over already, <laughs> like, so I don't know, you know maybe it is better later on, but it just didn't it didn't work here for me just watching it,
2: yeah, fair enough, I mean uh maybe maybe I should have picked the grave consequences one, but uh, it was fun for me at least to go back and watch this, so <laughs> I hope you can take some consolation from that,
1: yeah, uh, but yeah, so. Uh, I guess that's pretty much it then, you know And it it definitely didn't make me want to check out More Lucha Underground, but uh, You know There was some cool stuff here, I guess Uh, So let's go to my second pick Which was Izami Kodaka Versus Masa Takanashi From DDT on January 30th, 2016 Uh, For the KOD Openweight title From the 2016 Sweet Dreams event Um, First of all, I picked this Because I would have Never in a million years assumed you watched this match I'm assuming you did not watch it, right?
2: Uh, no, I've seen very little DDT.
1: That's what I figured. So I thought this was a very good example of a. I mean, it's a match again that I adore. So if you hate it, I'm gonna be very upset. But it's like a great example to me of like a Japanese wrestling match that is very different from what you get from New Japan, obviously. Um, and I'll talk about the reasons why I really liked it as we go along. But it's very. It's a very indie match, first of all. Like they, they both look, both guys look indie. I mean, I'm definitely not gonna deny that they both have. A very indie look um there are spots in the match that really aren't the smoothest and are not the most polished which you know is is the one flaw of the match and the one reason why i couldn't go like a full five on it but the match has like this kind of technical wrestling at like kind of like um you know with the cradles and the you know all that kind of stuff that you're not going to get really in, in a new japan style match very often and you know, it builds in a way that's really interesting. I think like, like, okay. When people talk about callback spots now, I feel like, you know, it's become a parody b- basically because that fucking, that Gargano, I, I immediately think of that organo Chomp a few words. Like, oh, every, every match features callbacks to the last match. I'm like just referencing a past match does not make a match good. And, you know, especially when those matches are fucking, you know, brutally terrible shit like some of those Guerrero and Champa matches are. But what, what, I, what I really like and what I think really elevates a match, you know, you, I don't think you need to call back you know, 50 matches of your past and, you know, make the viewer have to go back and watch, you know, three prior matches for this match to hit, hit you on the same level. But I really love when matches build within the match. When spots in the match lead to another spot later in the match and it has that internal logic. And this is the best example of that to me like this match stuff happens early in the match that leads directly to stuff late in the match and like counters late in the match and you know stuff pays off in a really really entertaining way in a really interesting way so that like i like the internal logic of a match the stuff building and calling back you know earlier spots in a match like that's what i really love as far as callbacks of past matches i mean that's great but like I think that's become a very overrated uh, aspect of wrestling nowadays. Um, I guess before I ask you for your opinions on the match, I'll give a little bit of background. So Zami Kodaka is a really interesting guy. He started out with, uh, if people aren't aware of him, he started out with Takuma Junoku's Kayentai Dojo in 2002. Um, he very quickly went freelance in 2004. He ended up in the DET system in 2005 and with their offshoot pro wrestling union. Uh, and, you know, he would go on to form Basara, in 2015 after union closed it's kind of like their direct successor uh they even use the same top title the union max title um at the same time he also started a big big japan in 2007 uh where he's active to this day now he is one of the most varied wrestlers i think in japanese wrestling because he does singles regular matches like this he does singles death matches which uh you know you can see them you know he's held the Big Japan Deathmatch Heavyweight Title multiple times, including just this past, just in 2019. And then he also has a really famous tag team with uh, another indie guy, Yuko Miyamoto, from these even smaller 666 promotion. And they've they've wrestled both death and regular tag matches. So you know he, if you look at because of all the stuff that he does, if you go look at Izami Kodaka's. Like title history page on cage match, is like 30 titles or something. Like he's held almost every, like so many belts, uh, so many different titles. Uh, he, he went back and won the kaintai Dojo top title. Uh, he's the current All Asia Tag Champions with Yuko Miyamoto right now in All Japan. He's held all sorts of other tag titles with Miyamoto and other singles titles. And at this point, this is his only reign with, DD, with DDTs top title. And this frame was kind of like almost to advertise Basara, I guess, because the Basara sub-brand was just about to start, or just starting. I think their first show was actually January 2016. It was called Raising an Army. But yeah, Basara would go on to break off from of DDT, and now, as of this year, it's like a totally separate promotion. But yeah, um, at this point, they were starting out as a DDT subbrand. Um So he won the title from Yukio Sakaguchi in November 2015, um, which was his, you know, only ti- only his first title and his only KOD openweight title. Uh, the guy he's facing here, Maka- Masataka Nashi, is just like a D.E.T. lifer. He started around the exact same time Izami as, started. He started in 2003. Uh, he very briefly held the KOD title in 2012. He beat Shenshiro Takagi in April, but he lost it a month later to Yuji Hino. Uh, and this was his first title shot in about two years since he had come up short against Hiroshima in 2014. Um and that I this is a really good clash of styles because both wrestlers are like, you know, these technical slash like almost like trickster wrestlers, especially Masa. Uh you'll see like his you Masa is like almost like an Eddie Guerrero type where he uses these underhanded tactics, um, but he's still beloved, basically. So, you know, well I'll I'll, I'll call him out as we go along in the match of some of the underhanded tactics he uses here to try to win, but that's just that's generally his thing. But they're both very uh, proficient on the mat and they both have a lot of different counters and you know massa
2: loves flash pens
1: as you'll see throughout the match. So with all that set up, Joel, what did you think of this match?
2: Uh gotta be honest, when I saw Kodaka's name, I thought it was gonna be a death match. But uh, yeah, I mean this is it's DDT in a nutshell for me because I liked it. It's a good match. Two talented guys, the work is crisp. There's some really creative spots, like cool moves I haven't seen before. Really hot crowd, lots of near falls down the closing stretch. But I feel like the same sort of cold detachment I get watching like a, a Marvel superhero movie where it's like, it's really flashy, but I don't feel anything. And maybe it's just that I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't know about the product. I don't know about the wrestlers. I don't have that emotional investment in it. And that's making me view it in a uh, sort of like a detached or an extra critical light. But when I see matches like this, and like, when I watched uh, Takeshita versus Endo, like to my ignorant untrained eyes i'm totally willing to be wrong on this and you can you can educate me but it just looks like a lot of cool moves and like, i thought at one point it's going to be a leg match and but they seem to kind of blow that off towards the end and like the finish is takanashi just getting kicked in the head and you know I, I accept i'm probably in the minority with that and you know I, i'm willing to be uh taught around here but i think i've just reached a point where i, I feel like i've missed the boat with ddt so like i'm 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 Russell Crowe in Les Mis, staring through the window with a grumpy look on my face. But uh, t- talk me around. Help me see the error of my ways here. What, what am I missing?
1: See, so, you know, I, so I, I think they build to that. So I'll explain it a little bit, I guess. Um, first of all, you can see Masa's underhanded tactics throughout the early portion of the match. He, like, at one point grabs a zombie in a headlock. And a zombie like, makes the ropes, which should obviously be a break. But instead, like, Masa just, like, rubs... His, uh, his head against the ropes, which is just a, such a great little spot, and then turns it into, like, a springing bulldog by, like, kicking off the top turnbuckle. Uh, so that, that I really liked. And there's, like, this really incredible sequence of transitions where, uh, you know, Masa Takanashi has him in a crossface. His zombie is, like, reaching for the ropes. He almost gets it. And then at this last second, Masa grabs his other arm and turns it into a backslide for two, and then immediately turns that into a guillotine choke. So if you don't, if you're not into that kind of stuff, then I totally get why this match isn't going to land for you, like it did for me. I love watching like dudes just fucking, uh, you know, turn holds into you know flash pins and everything, especially when it looks as smooth as it does here. So that stuff is awesome. Um, you know, there's this great sequence where that really puts the match into overdrive, where Massa like pulls him back after a headlock and just fucking drops him on his head with a backdrop. Izami no sells it and they exchange super kicks, and the massive tries like this first flipping cradle for a two count. Um, and then here's where they do the leg stuff. Now, here's here's where I disagree with you. I don't think they do so much leg stuff, and I've been a very critical person when it comes to leg matches. I think they wait until late enough in the match that you cannot reasonably call this a leg match. Like, I think the leg stuff, it, it builds towards the finish, and you know, it makes, I think it all makes sense for what they do, but I don't think this a leg match like they wait so long to do it that i don't think you can call it a leg match um but it starts with like the the really crazy dragon screw in the corner that master sells like death and that's up the big leg hold and ankle lock sequence and then massa comes up this awesome counter where he uses his other leg to push the leg down which you you know I, you almost never see that and he turns that into a pin you know a pinfall the roll-up counter almost gets the pin and there are some incredible um flash pin near falls by in this match like i don't know how the referee didn't almost count three and you could hear the crowd every time just like completely gasp and lose their shit like how was that not three so like this is like if you're like me and you love flash pins you have to watch this match because there are some of the most incredible flash pin near falls in this match of all time probably
2: um yeah there yeah. was like 2.99999 that got me at the end
1: yeah and they, they so that 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 whole thing I just talked about, the role of counter, that starts like this sequence of flash fin attempts. And I think that's where they, the really incredibly close near fall by Masa come. Um and then so Masa throughout this match, he keeps trying for this Yoshitanic. First, he almost does it from the apron to the floor, but the crowd is like, oh my god, you're gonna kill the guy. If you don't know what Yoshitanic is, it's basically like the guy he he ends up like like uh I don't know how to describe this, like the legs around your waist and like flips over into like this sunset foot power bomb it's kind of hard to explain but you know if you if you know the move you can probably picture it in your head um but yeah so masa blocks it on the apron um i mean izami blocks on the apron i mean which is good because masa probably would have killed him um the second time masa tries it izami blocks it by just fucking sitting down on him which looks brutal and then he goes right back to the leg lock Uh, masa comes really close to giving up and then finally makes the ropes then masa tries the yoshin for a third time this time off the top rope Izami blocks it again, so Masa turns it into a Masa like is ready for the for him to block it this time, and he turns it into a sunset flip. Uh, he basically sunset flips himself down to the down to the ring, and then does a top rope power bomb. So that was like a great counter to the counter. Um, he remembers to set the leg after, which is great, even though the leg work you know it hasn't taken over the match or anything, and then. Masa finally hits his fucking Yoshi Tonic on the fourth try to, like, this enormous response. It feels like this is the fucking finish, like, the, the entire match is building this spot, and then fucking Izami kicks out, which, the first time I saw that, I remember, like, I, I, I didn't even mention this before, this match is, like, the match that made me really fall in love with DDT. Like, I, I didn't see it until six months after it took place, and you know, this was the match that convinced me to start, like, watching it regularly, basically. And, like, I remember the first time Masa, the first time I watched this and you know, Masa finally hits that Yoshi Tonic, my fucking heart was in my throat, like, oh my God, this is this is it. Like he wins with this, right? Because it builds the entire time. And when Zami just kicks out, I'm like, this is fucking incredible. Like they completely, they build this spot, you know, throughout the match. They make you think that it's gonna be the finish, and then it's just not the finish. So it's per- like it's done perfectly. Um but yeah, and then there's like so much greatness in the final stretch with him playing off the earlier moves that are now countered. Um, you know, Masa, he basically... It, when Izami goes to the leg trap again, the way he just he kept getting a leg hold, Masa sits down to block it. Uh, he turns into yet another cradle for another near fall. Izami finally realizes the submissions are not going to work. He can't get this man to tap out. So that's where he finally stretches gears. He gets his two top rope knee drops, which is like one of his finishers, off the top rope. And then finally, he escapes a few more counter attempts by Masa. He hits these repeated super kicks to a kneeling Massa and that gets the pen. So this is where I disagree with you on the finish. I don't think they just blew off the leg stuff. I think the, they, they told the story where like the leg stuff was not going to work, where he just wasn't able to get the hole back in the way he wanted. And you know Massa at this point was ready to counter and just was always able to escape at the end. So Izami basically had to give up on it and just was like, well, if you're not going to fucking tap out, then I'm going to fucking just kill you and that's what he does he hits these two top rope knee drops and hits these super kicks and just fucking you know just kills them and bends them so i don't know i i can get where you're coming from i guess but like to me it's structured in a non-traditional way that still makes sense to me in the story of the match and the fact that they they play at your expectations they make you think masa hitting this fourth yoshi tonic is going to be the pin they make you think izami going back to this leg lock is going to be the finish but then they completely take it away from you and you know like well that stuff didn't work so now a zombie just has to kill him i thought that was perfect so i i absolutely adore this match the only reason why i can't go the full five is because um you know there are there's some stuff early on that's like kind of sloppy so and a little awkward but like it just builds so well and tells such a great like internal story and like all those fucking near falls and and the crowd going completely crazy it's so great it's one of my favorite matches i went four and three quarters I'm you're much lower, but I, I adore this match.
2: Yeah, maybe probably uh, I would appreciate it more on a second watch with those nuances in mind. What, what I want is if I sit down to watch one of these DDT shows is someone to sit with me and explain it all because maybe I'm just sort of too out of the loop with it to be able to fully appreciate it. But uh, yeah. yeah, you certainly shone some light on the narrative within that match. I will say the first time I saw it, I was not in the loop either on <laughs> DDT. I
1: just, I don't know. It just, it really landed for me for whatever reason. Um, But, yeah, Uh, do you have anything else to say about the match, I guess, before we move on?
2: Uh, No, I thought it was – yeah, good, exciting match. I enjoyed watching it.
1: The final match we're going to talk about was the fan vote match, uh, Tetsuya Naito versus Shinsuke Nakamura from New Japan, August 4th, 2011, of course, the G1 final for 2011. Now, you had put up a three-way match, Brock Lesnar versus Seth Rollins versus John Cena from the Royal Rumble in 2015 um the problem joel is you cursed yourself to lose your own f- fan vote because you re- you retreated it was really close for a while like it was they were both right around 50 percent maybe one will get to 51 the other one will get to 51 then you retreated from the super j cast account filled with new japan fans and it was no longer close <laughs> like it went to like 60 40 at one point if the final tally ended up being 56 to 44 for Naito nakamura so yeah i think you cursed yourself to lose this vote unfortunately
2: yeah, but you know what, John? I'm glad that I did because this match is great. I loved it. Okay. And I and wouldn't watched that otherwise. And you had never seen it before? No? No, never. This okay. is my first time. So
1: okay. So again, I'll give you a little bit of background. Uh so NATO, he had briefly joined Nakamura's Chaos Stable uh, along with his No Limit tag team partner at Yujiro Takahashi in April 2010. Um, but it was very obvious that like NATO was not gonna last as a heel because like and this is one of those things that I think is lost to history. But like we were just ta- they were just talking about this in the voice wrestling discord. By the end of 2010, the crowd is super behind Naito. Like he's facing Tanahashi, I think, at Cork and Hall. And he's technically the heel, but the crowd is like 1000% behind Naito at this point. So when they turned him face in 2011, it was not some like mistake or anything. Like they, the crowd loved this man. And it comes across here where, like, they – when he comes out, you know, it's weird hearing the entrance music and not hearing any reaction. But, you know, and I I think if you first watch this, you're probably like, oh, he wasn't over, huh? But, like, I just think it was a new theme song, and they didn't know the song, basically. But by the time – like, when the match starts, the match starts with an enormous Naito uh, chant. Like, this crowd is 1,000% behind him the entire match. Um, But, yeah, basically, May 2011 – Yujiro turns on him and splits up no limit. So Naito returns to Sekigun and Yujiro stays in chaos where he'd stay as a single until he joined Bullet Club in 2014. Um, but Naito, you know, he goes into this G1. Uh, he, well, first of all, after he gets turned on, he goes back to CMLL for another month, which is why he's worrying all this uh, stuff about Mexico, I guess. And then he, you know, he comes back with to the G1. He goes six and three to win block A. Uh, Nakamura went seven and two to win block B. By the way, one of his only losses was to Rocky Goto because, you know, that feud was still going strong at this point. Um, But yeah, this is a, this final, I mean, this, when I I watched this, like I was already kind of into Naito in real time. Um, You know, I really liked Team No Limit and I really liked, you know, just Naito in general. And, but this match is like where it's like, okay, this guy is like one of my favorite wrestlers. And obviously that would slowly turn into... My absolute favorite wrestler, but like this is a big turning point for my fandom with with Tipsy and Naito. Like this is like, holy shit, this guy's really good, and that's why later on when the, the New Japan fans would start turning on him two years later in 2013, I would get very upset. But uh, you know, it all worked out in the end, obviously. But yeah, this match here—if people listening to this have not seen it and don't know—you know—they are really into babyface Naito here. Did that surprise you as a as a, someone who who wasn't? Who I guess has only heard about this stuff secondhand.
2: I think it's impossible to watch this match and not get caught up cheering for Naito because he's so good in this match that it's just impossible not to want to cheer for the guy.
1: Yeah. So I mean, he's he is really really good. Um, But yeah, so this match, I guess, uh, one of the, I guess, one don't forget in the match itself. Nakamura would win this, of course, and as most expected to at the time. Uh, Naito's first G1 wouldn't be until two years later. And this was the last G1 where the winner did not get the automatic IWGP heavyweight title shot at Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, Nakamura's shot at the champion, Hiroshi Tanahashi, came uh, about one month later at – or is it is this August? Yes, it is August. So one month later in September, September 19th at Kobe World Hall, and he did not win – and that was Nakamura's final shot, the IWGP Heavyweight Title, September 2011. He never got another shot at the title before he left in January 2016. That's how wrapped up in the Intercontinental he was. So, to answer your question from earlier, I do think he would have eventually gotten the title again, or at least got another title shot. Um, I think they were building maybe to him and Okada or something. But like, yeah, they they took they did they kept him away from that title for a long, long time. So, um, you know, this is a you know, Nak- so basically the entire thing of this match is Nakamura working over Naito. Uh, he plays a big bully. You know, keeps daring Naito to hit him back. He- Nakamura is fucking awesome here as a, the the heel. What, what did you think of his work here as someone who hasn't seen a lot of Nakamura?
2: Yeah, I just think it's really interesting that you picked two Nakamura matches for this show, and I think this one is a great comparison point to the Goto match because you can see for for me how much more compelling uh, Nakamura matches with. What I think is a more dynamic baby face on a dog opponent because, like, Naito being the spirited youngster challenging the favorite really helps to bring out Nakamura's cocky prickishness. And yeah, like, you can see here that uh, Nakamura's just starting to figure out his persona, it's, it's not quite there yet, but he's got a bit more swagger and attitude than the Goto match. Yeah, you can see it when he comes out. Like, if people watch both these matches,
1: the first match when he comes out, like, he is still pretty much an M- MMA shooter, Nakamura. Mode. I mean, he has no real like nothing no hint of the personality that will come later on here he is like he's moving around a little bit it's nothing like he would the the more famous stuff he would do later but like you can see it kind of starting like he's starting to develop like a little bit of swagger so um but yeah so nakamura he basically plays a big bully he keeps staring at him back uh when naito finally does nakamura really fucking starts laying into him and that is awesome but that goes on for a while and then naito finally gets like this light trip from the apron and then springs up to top rope for a missile dropkick which is like a kind of a proto uh combination cabron i guess and then he falls up with this knee breaker into this awesome pair of basement dropkicks the the second one is like this this basement dropkick off the top rope which how often have you seen a missile basement dropkick that was fucking awesome Um, but then like Nakamura comes back with like this reverse power slam to Naito off the top rope, which is like a pretty sick bump by Naito, sick bump by Naito, I should say. Um, and then Naito does this again, goes back to the basement drop kicks with this like awesome counter basement drop kick to stop a charging Nakamura's bombay attempt. Uh, and then Naito, you know, he gets he lands on his feet after a. Uh, Nakamura German. hits this great diving for him and his own German for a near fall. And then another one uh, for another great near fall. And then Naito, he slams Nakamura, goes to the Stardust Press. He misses. Nakamura immediately fucking murders him with this bombay to the back of the head, which is, that's one of my favorite sequences of all time. I love that sequence. Uh, he's unable to capitalize with the cover. And then Naito, you know, he gets some absolutely incredible flash pin near falls as Sumo Hall is like absolutely losing their mind. But he makes a mistake he tries the flying form a second time and again there's another just like the last match is like stuff paying off in the same match and nakamura counters it with this double knee counter that's great and then he finally finishes him with the final bombing a for the pin so this is an awesome match um it, it's not perfect or anything like i honestly think if nakamura had stayed past january 2016 and they did a proper feud with him against lij naito they could have topped this and had like a a real five star classic, but this is still like an awesome match. And it's a match I've seen a million times because it's like two of my all time favorite me- wrestlers and they're um, like their bi- only real big historic meeting. They met like another G1 in 2013, I think, but that's not nowhere near as memorable as this. So that that one I see only a couple of times. This one I've watched, like I have watched this match like it, what Nicole joked when she came in and I was watching it, and she's like, oh, you're watching this again. And I was like, yeah, for the show. And she's like, why do you need to watch this show? You probably have the entire thing fucking memorized by now because she's seen me watch it so many times. But yeah, um, you know, really awesome match four and a half stars for me. I don't know if you want to give a similar star rating.
2: Yeah, I will be there or thereabouts. And I just think Naito is so good here. And I know it's a point you to take to say that the Stardust Genius gimmick was shit or whatever, but like, how can you watch this match and not think he's awesome? Like, I think Stardust Genius Naito is great to watch. I like the Keiji Muto influence in his moveset. He's very physically dynamic. And you know, obviously I'm not in the camp that thinks Naito is a broken down husk of a man in 2020, but he clearly moves much more quickly and freely here. And I especially like when he flicks that switch and starts going after Nakamura's leg and living up to his nickname, like, like, you don't have to be a, a nasty, mean heel to work a body part in a compelling way. And you're cheering for him as the smart kid who's working out a way to take down the bigger threat. And yeah, you mentioned it, that great moment where he counters the Bomae with the, the drop kick to the knee. as like an absolute desperation move. And he's, throughout the match, he's selling those knee shots from Nakamura so well. like He's almost sobbing as Nakamura is cracking him in the ribs. And, like, for me, he's everything Goto wasn't in the previous match. And and I think people forget what a compelling babyface in peril Naito is. Because, you know, with El in Gobanabla and Naito, we get used to him being cocky and spitting at people, winding them up and that. But for this match, I found there are a lot of parallels with, with uh, Night 2 of Wrestle Kingdom against Okada, with Naito as the underdog babyface, which I think is great to watch. And one other thing, I, I love the length of this match. I, I wish we could have more 20-minute main events. Yeah. <laughs> It, it was tremendous, you know, especially yeah. considering they both already wrestled that night, and you got Naito crying on his way out with Hiromu you know, right in the fields there, and yeah, like you, I just would have loved to have seen Lij Naito versus Nakamura. To, you know, who knows in the future what we might get? Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I'm almost like if Nakamura comes back now, would he even be able to do it? But uh, you know, you never know because I mean, he's been he has been so brutal in WWE that like you know. It, it almost makes you wonder it's like yeah he, i mean the style sucks and i'm sure he's not trying but like could you just flip that switch after fucking four years of uh you know even, even more probably by the time he, if he ever comes back because he's not coming back anytime soon like could you fucking flip that switch and just go back to like being this badass like is he too old is he too broken down is, was just way too long and you know playing fucking all right do your talk buddy make sure you hit your entrance that's the most important part all right now you're you're done and it's like i don't know i don't know if he could i don't know if he could do it i mean i don't know if you saw my tweet from yesterday but people uh, i because when i was watching these nakamura matches obviously i tweeted something like uh you know mansion skin nakamura is one hell of a pro wrestler before his tragically early retirement in 2016 and that's, like, one of my most popular tweets in a while. Because I guess people... I was expecting someone to, like, at me and be angry. Like, it's got, like, you know, 280 likes or something. I thought someone by now would be like, you know, oh, no, he's great. And it's like, no one no one has spoken up in defense.
2: Maybe you have do it all those people already.
1: <laughs> no, I don't... I, I mean, there are, there are WWE people who follow me. And I, I just think even the WWE people don't even like Nakamura at this point. So I just think it's, like, not a... I just think they don't it's not a guy they were going to come like if I said you know oh, Daniel Bryan sucks now I know I would get pushed back on that but like Nakamura sucks it's like no nah, no one you know Nakamura sucks now no one fucking cares I mean like he is pretty much self-evident so
2: yeah uh, I think it could be rehab like if you look at the trajectory of someone like Kenta who went through that meat grinder in WWE with the injuries and, and whatnot and was able to go back well I say go back go to New Japan and, and readjust his style and I think do tremendous work I think Nakamura could do something similar.
1: That's true. There'd definitely be a transition period, though. I think, like there was for Kenta. So, I guess for, I think it would be awkward for a little while at least. But who knows? It'd be interesting. I mean, he he would have so many natural feuds if he came back. Or it's like I I fantasy booked us in Tew before because <laughs> it's like he should definitely come back as a heel, you know, who like abandoned the company, and you could you could do the, the legend match from Tanahashi, the match at Okada the Naito match, which, you know, he's never faced L.I.J. Naito at all. Um, I mean, you could do the re- – revisit Ibushi again. I mean, there's so many matches just, just off the top, just with, like, the very top guys, let alone, like, anybody else who might come up by the time he, you know, he's re- by the time he ever comes back. But I don't know. It just feels like – I like, it's not – it's one of those things I'm not going to get my hopes up for because, you know, he's already – in his forties, I believe. Yeah, he's exactly, forty years old, and I, I don't, I just don't, I don't know if he can do it. I think it's an open question whether or not he could come back. And you know, even if he wanted to, which I, at this point, I don't, I don't know if he does. And I kind of think there's a lot of evidence he might not want to. But it's like, so I don't know. I guess some a long winded way for me to say I can, I'll, I'll leave the memories alone with Nakamura. <laughs> it's like, you know, if this is all I have is. The archive of his amazing matches I can make do with that because I think he had a lot of really incredible matches and if other people who haven't seen a lot of him I definitely recommend you know diving in and checking them out so because there's a lot of really cool stuff
2: What I would like to see from you John is doing like a split screen uh, watch along with the Nakamura Ibishi match and the Nakamura Sami Zayn match <laughs> Like you know, like, you getting into this. pause. Look, <laughs> it's
1: the exact same thing here. People people are were like really deep in denial about that when it happened. And now I think every time i it's come up, people are much more willing to admit it. But yeah, I mean like at the time when that match happened, I wa I, I was in Japan when that happened. I watched it. Uh I, I can I can very easily remember this because like I said, I was it was my first trip to Japan. I, I remember that trip very, very well. And I was in my little tiny one person uh, single hotel room in Shinagawa um, at the, I think the Shinagawa Prince hotel. And, you know, I didn't have anything to do that night. It was like, you know, I got back at like 10 PM and I was like, well, let me check out this Nakamura takeover debut that just happened, you know, I guess the previous night uh, America time. It was the only thing, I think I might've watched like a woman's match from that show. I don't, I don't remember what it was now. And I didn't watch any of WrestleMania. Like I waited. I remember the other people on my trip, like some a bunch of them got up early the the morning of WrestleMania uh, Japan time and like watched it live. And I was like, I'm, you guys have fun. I am I am in this country that I've wanted to go to since I was like fucking 10 years old. I got better things to do than watch fucking WWE. So I was, and I remember Joey Bay who was on the trip with me. He's, he's gonna love it. He's getting a shout out two weeks in a row. He started watching it. I I believe he can correct me if I'm wrong. He started watching with them and like gave up a few hours in, and was like, "You know what? Fuck this! I'm gonna go hang out with John, and we're gonna go see some uh, Tokyo sites because this is stupid." So (laughs) that was kind of funny, Uh, but yeah. So, so I watched that Nakamura match. Back to Nakamura Zane. I watched it in my hotel room at night. um, You know, like pretty much right after it happened, and you know, I remember watching and being like, "What the fuck is this? They're just doing." Like, Sami Zayn is just doing all of... It's like Nakamura Bushi with Sami Zayn is Kota Ibushi. I was like, other than that, like, he does that famous El Generico, uh, like, dive through the ropes, and swinging DDT on the floor. And that's, like, the only spot of the match that, like, he's not just lifting from Kota Ibushi. I'm just like, what? Like, I can't believe, like, people, you know, and then I look at the reviews and expect to see people be like, oh, yeah, it's just Nakamura Bushi again. You know, it's good, but it's the same exact match. And so people are like, this is the greatest match of all time, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So that was like one of those moments where I'm just like, I don't understand the, I, didn't, I don't understand A, the NXT fan base and B, the level of like, um, like the past and like the people gave NXT. In, just in general it was just very it was a very bizarre experience for me I was watching watching that match and, be, and maybe it's just like I watched that Nakamura Ibushi match more times than most human beings on the earth like I watched that match you know again just like this Nakamura night match I watched it like 500 times so I have it memorized like pretty much in my head but I was like yeah this is here's that spot here's that spot here's that spot here's that spot and they all lined up perfectly like they it, they're almost in the exact same order as the Nakamura Ibushi match so I'm like the, I guess there's nothing wrong with Nakamura lifting from himself if you want to, you know, if you, like, I'm not saying it's, like, some moral failing. But it's, like, why are we praising the exact same match that we already saw, like, it's some new classic? It's just, it's the same fucking match. So, I don't know. It was very, that was, and people got so angry at me. That was, like, one of my, one of those times on the internet where, like, I had people in my mentions, like, calling me every name in the book and just, like, very mad at me for, for pointing this out. And, like, I guess shitting on this mess everybody else loved. But, yeah, Nakamura vs. Sami Zayn. I said it four years ago. I'll say it now. It's Nakamura versus Kota Ibushi, but with a 7 trillion times more annoying crowd. So...
2: <laughs> yeah, well when, when I watched that, I hadn't seen Nakamura Ibushi, so... Uh, I thought <laughs> Nakamura Sami Zayn was the greatest thing since slice bread, but I do remember saying at the time on my other podcast, my Smartcast, that I was worried how he would Nakamura would keep up this standard of match. And I, I thought, you know, I'm a bit concerned that that might actually be his best match. Is he going to have a better match than this? And I that to be right. So, <laughs> I one. mean, I, some people like his NXT stuff.
1: I I never liked. it. I mean, after that same Zayn match, I would be, like. I'll be rude. Come on. <laughs> but and then some of Joe stuff is bad too. And you know, I, I just I mean, maybe not even bad is the wrong word, but like you know, three
0: star stuff. betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc we say that aj fuma once he gets the main roster like you know they have
1: the jobbing to jinder <laughs> i mean i this is you know, this is a hot take, I guess, but like he had better, he has some better matches with Jinder Mahal than he ever had with AJ Styles. Like, how the fuck does that work? But anyway,
2: he was good in the Royal Rumble. I like
1: that one. Yeah, he was really good in that Rumble. That's true. But uh but yeah, man, that AJ feud. Oh my god, I that's one of those things where it's like when people tell me they liked it, I'm just like, okay, <laughs> like you you like it. they they had a really an incredibly disappointing match at WrestleMania. And then the rest of the feud is just based around kicking each other in the balls. It's just not, just not entertaining or interesting, much like anything else involving that company. So, you know. And then, and did you see Nakamura recently threatened us with a, a resumption of that feud? He said he doesn't think it's over yet, and they'll get back at some point. I'm like what? <laughs> First of all, you're both heels, sir. Second of all, please don't do that. Please, don't, please stop threatening us. We're, we're living through a crisis, okay? We don't need to be threatened with more Nakamura HA Styles matches. Thank you. Eric,
2: give me the Jindamahal rubber match. There you go. But yeah. Um,
1: all right. So I guess we could wrap it up there. We talked, we, we went on that random little tangent. But anyway, uh,
2: Joel, go ahead and give me some plugs. Right. Uh, please listen to my podcast, The Super J Cast. You can find us on Twitter at The Super J Cast. If you like New Japan Pro Wrestling, even though they're not running any shows at the moment, me and my wonderful co-host Damon McDonald are doing some nice dives into the archives to talk about some older shows that you might not watch. So we've got some good stuff lined up for next week. I'm going to be. I've picked one match from each decade. I have got one from the 80s and 90s, the thousands, and the. Tens, I don't know <laughs> what do we call that decade. I call that I call the
1: zero zeros the aughts. Am I the only one I call it the aughts?
2: The aughts? what'd you call the decade after that? Then,
1: yeah, the tens, I guess. Tens. So, uh...
2: Yeah, so there you go. If you like New Japan, please uh, give us a what are the ma- have- What are the
1: matches? Can you plug it for us?
2: Uh, I can let me just check and see what they are because I forgot. Um, because this picked... will be up
1: probably like a day or two after we're up, I guess. So,
2: yeah, um, I've got Ricky Choshu versus Antonio Inoki from. Uh, the 2nd of August, 84. Koji Kanemoto versus El Samurai from 5th of June, 1997. Oh, that Milano match Cle- Rolls. That match rules. Uh, Milano Collection 80 versus uh, Inoue from 17th of June, 2007. Uh, Marifuji versus Okada from 10th of October, 2016.
1: That match also rules, I think? I, I don't remember. One of them was really good and one of them wasn't. Maybe, maybe it was the G1 match that I liked better, but I guess we'll see. Uh, maybe I'll go back and check. I don't remember how to look, but yeah. Actually, no. I think the more I think about, it, I think I like the G one match way better. But either way. Anyway, Joel, uh, it was a pleasure having you on. As always, uh, you don't want to plug your own Twitter, Joel B.
2: Joel J. Abraham. Oh, I said B. Abraham. Sorry.
1: Yeah. So Joel is on Twitter. We are also on Twitter. It's at Russell Omakase. Wrestling did not fit. And, folks, the Five Matches series rolls along next week. Uh, I have on from the Street Fight podcast, returning to the show for the first time in, I think, like two or three years, uh, Mr. Murder Brian on Twitter, I, at Murder Brian. So it would be very exciting to have him back on. I've already We've already picked each other's matches, so I can already tell you. Um, well, actually, I'll save the surprise. We picked a bunch of matches other than the fan vote ones. So, um, but, yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to have some more some more Japanese wrestling, some American wrestling, um, you know, we'll go a little bit obscure and also a, a terrible American wrestling match that did not get voted in will be discussed next week. So for people who wanted that to hear that one, when I put it up for vote, uh, I think you probably, if you listened to the episode, you probably already know what match I'm talking about. That will be, that, that is one of my actual picks this time, not my fan vote pick. So that will be talked about next week, a truly awful match that I'm looking forward to mocking. So we'll talk about that next week. But in the meantime, uh, thank you as always for listening. We greatly appreciate it. And we'll see you next time.